Ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome. A formal welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It's great to have you all on this Friday, May 21st, 2021. So today is 5-21-21. All right. Um, so let me share my screen with y'all. Hold on. Let me find this here. Are you seeing the Torah reading? Is that coming up? Yes. Yes. Torah reading? Okay, good. All right. Hard to tell on my end. Okay, here we go. Fourth reading. Oh, oh I mentioned this, I want to say, a few days ago, that um, the fourth reading is a long reading. It talks about the Sota and the Nazir and the Koha and the priestly blessing. So the Sota is the suspected... Um, the the wife who is suspected of infidelity. Now, I just I need to I need to caution. So a few things. Number one, um, in biblical law, not in rabbinic law, and not the way it's been practiced for 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 a while now. But in in biblical law, a man could have more than one husband. Sorry, let me try that again. A man could have. Let me try that again. A man could have more than one wife. But a wife could not have more than one husband, which means, and I understand the imbalance on the playing field here, but I don't write the Bible. You know that by now. Um, I'm just reporting the fact. So in biblical law, a man could have more than one wife, which means there's really no concept of infidelity. I know what you're thinking. Work with me here. But a man could theoretically marry another wife and in biblical law, and that's kosher. But a woman could not have more than one husband, which means that if she's with someone else, that is necessarily a problem. Oh, and as well as the guy that's with her is also, now he's in trouble because he can't be with someone who's married. Um, so that's, this is the, that's kind of a, a very general introduction for, today, for the SOTA discussion. A more specific is we're dealing with somebody with a husband who suspects that his wife is being unfaithful based on the fact that she's been seen kind of sneaking away with a certain fellow and he's told her, you know, hey, I'm hearing about this. You know, I, I don't want you to hang out with that guy, whatever it is. I don't know what's going on. And it happens again. This is where now there's no clear evidence that anything happened. But what we do know is that she was together with someone else in a secluded place and something could have happened. No one was there to know. So this is where the Sota comes in and essentially it's her drinking certain waters, a potion, that will then reveal whether or not she was um, indeed unfaithful. And if indeed she is, she is innocent, then she's blessed. If she's guilty, then... No, 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 no. Then the waters themselves take... Uh, the waters themselves are, um, are activated... And they, 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 they have their own effect. We'll see. Listen. Let's, let's study it together. Numbers chapter 5. Guaranteed that it's going to be action-packed. I don't know if everyone... Talk about it uh, in the... I think it was the first... Not the first book of the boot clubs. The second one. About, you know, it was about the priest and... Uh, yes, of course. I love that one. The one about... Um, they discussed that, yes. The eternal, living for... The one, the eternal life. Right, that one? No. No. Uh, I thought so. 
Oh, was it this one? She was in the temple and she was oh, yes. with, with another guy and, and, and she was forgiven, but the only way for her forgiveness was if she would live forever, right? Wasn't that the, the premise? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's the one. Right. Yeah. If, it might have been another one, but yeah. So um, it did come up there. You're right. Okay. All right. Well, here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them. I'm just trying to read a little bit fast because we have a lot to get to. Should any man's wife go astray and deal treacherously with him and a man lie with her carnally? But it was hidden from her husband's eyes, but she was secluded with her suspected adulterer and there was no witness against her and she was not seized. But a spirit of jealousy had come upon him and he became jealous of his wife and she was defiled or a spirit of jealousy had come upon him and he was jealous of his wife and she was not defiled. Now, none of this really makes sense in the English and the Talmud explains it at length what is actually happening here. And it's written in a, in a bit of a, I'm just going to say this, a bit of a convoluted way. It's talking not about a case where we know what happened. He's suspicious. And, but there was opportunity. And she was alone. And she had already been warned by the husband. Not warned, but she had already been asked by the husband, you know, don't, be with, don't hang out with that guy. And it still happened. And now he doesn't know if she was defiled or if she was not defiled. That's kind of what, how the Talmud interprets this. right? It says, and she was defiled, and then it says, and she was not defiled. We don't know if it happened or not. That's the question that the, the waters, the potion, will ascertain. So then the man shall bring his wife. By the way, he doesn't have to. But then the man shall, if he wants to, the man shall bring his wife to the Kohen and bring her offering for her, one tenth of an eighth of barley flour. He shall neither pour oil over it nor frankincense upon it, for it is a meal offering of jealousies, a meal offering of remembrance, recalling iniquity. So it mentions jealousy. In other words, the, 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 um, the problem could be with the husband in this case. I just want to be very clear. The problem could be that the husband is being over-jealous and over-protective and over-controlling. That's completely, could be she's completely innocent and he's just like, the whole story is in his head. It could be. But then again, if that's the case, then she gets a blessing from it. It's, it's, a, it's, all, it's all positive experience. Um, so the Kohen shall bring her forth and present her before the Lord. The Kohen shall take holy water, um, it's special water, in an earthen vessel. And holy water just has another, I think, another connotation in uh, popular parlance. But it means um, water taken from the spring that was near the temple, and some earth from the Mishkan floor. The Kohen shall take and put it into the water, some of the earth from the Mishkan floor into the water. The Kohen shall let stand the woman up before the Lord and expose her hair on the head of the woman. He shall place into her hands the remembrance meal offering, which is a meal offering of jealousies, while the bitter curse bearing waters are in the Kohen's hand. So there's the water, there's the meal offering. The Kohen shall then place her under oath. He basically says to her, hey, now's your opportunity. Did you do something or not? And he says to the woman, if no man has lain with you and you have not gone astray to become defiled to another in place of your husband, then you'll be absolved through these bitter waters which cause the curse. In other words, if you're innocent, you have nothing to worry about, all will be fine. On the contrary, you will be blessed by drinking this water. Uh, He didn't just say that, but I'm adding that on because that is indeed the case. But as for you, if you have gone astray, Right? If something did happen to another instead of your husband and you have become defiled and another man besides your husband is lame with you, dot, dot, dot. So that's, that's basically what it is. So the Kohen tells this woman, look, you know, you're now at a, at a crossroads. You know, if you're drinking this water and you're innocent, you're fine. But if you're guilty, then it's not going to end so well. So be very careful. And, and, and she has the option of just saying, you know what, I'm not going to drink the waters. 
I'm going to separate from my husband, which is essentially uh, um, a, an admission of, of, of guilt. But she doesn't have to drink the water. She could just say, you know what? That's it. I did it. And, and separate. Or she can say, no, I'm innocent and drink the waters. But then the waters will indeed tell the tale. So the Kohen shall now adjure the woman with the oath of the curse. And the, Kohen, the curse meaning if, if she did something wrong and the waters do take effect, etc. The Kohen shall say to the woman, may the Lord make for you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord causes your thigh to rupture and your belly to swell again if she is guilty. For these curse-bearing waters shall enter your innards, causing the belly to swell and the thigh to rupture. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. In other words, the Kohen is just saying, the Kohen is not actually cursing her. The Kohen is just saying, like, if you're guilty and you drink these waters, this is what's going to happen. I just want you to know, before you go ahead with this, it could be dangerous. And she has to say, yes, yes, I, I understand. I'm, 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 I'm innocent. Let's continue. So that's, that's what happens. But you, you don't give her the waters to drink if she doesn't have complete awareness of what the question is and what's at stake if she indeed did something wrong. Verse 23, the Kohen shall then write these curses, in other words, these, these verses on a scroll and erase it in the bitter water. He shall then give the bitter water, curse-bearing waters to the woman to drink, for the curse-bearing water shall enter her to become bitter. Again, that's only, it's only curse-bearing bitter waters if she is guilty, not if she is Innocent. The Kohen, I just, I'm just going to clarify that again and again, even though the Torah refers to it as such, it's not guaranteed that that's the case. Obviously, it's up to her as to what happened. Uh, okay, the Kohen shall then shall take the meal offering of jealousies from the woman's hand, wave the meal offering from, uh, before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The Kohen shall scoop out from the meal offering its reminder, that was the three-finger scoop, and burn upon the altar, and he shall give the woman, the water to drink. He shall make her drink the water, and it shall be that if she had been defiled and was unfaithful to her husband, the curse-bearing water shall enter her to become bitter, and her belly will swell, and her thigh will rupture. The woman will be a curse among her people. And really, the, the, the end of this is that she would, she would become sick, and, uh, and, and that would be a fatal situation. But if the woman had not become defiled and is, she is clean, she shall be exempted and bear seed. In other words, the, the, the waters do not have a negative effect. On the contrary, they have a positive effect. It says bear seed for fertility or for ease of childbirth, if she was already, whatever it is. Like, if it's just a healing and a, and, a, and a blessing water if she indeed is not guilty of anything. This is the law of jealousies. Again, it's calling it jealousies. When a woman goes astray to someone other than her husband is defiled, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife and he presents the woman before the Lord and the Kohen shall do to her all this law, the man shall be absolved of iniquity and the woman shall bear her iniquity if she's guilty. And if not, then it's the opposite. The woman is absolved of iniquity and the guy, he was the jealous husband who made her go through this. All right. Now, is this something that he should do, something that he should not do? Look, it's, it's, it's a suspicion. It's grounded not just on randomness, but on, the, on two witnesses. The only way this can happen, by the way, is if two witnesses testify that they saw the wife and another guy who's not her husband be secluded or enter into a private space, like uh, a room. Let's give like a modern example. Let's say two witnesses see the wife and another guy go into a hotel room, right? So there's no guarantee as to what happened in that hotel room. You know, maybe they were playing chess. I don't know. But, but it's, um, 
it's, it's a little suspicious. So at that point, she, the husband says, hey, you know, I, I, I don't know what happened, but, but, but please don't do this. And she does it again. So that's when this would be um, a possibility. She doesn't have to drink it, doesn't have to go through it. She could just say, you know what, I'm sorry. This is what happened. And then they could figure it out. But if she maintains her innocence, then she drinks the water and the waters kind of sort things out in this miraculous way. So this is really kind of a bit of a miraculous, it's not a natural thing, it's a miraculous type of, you know, ascertaining as to what happened in order to, to figure out what, where this marriage is holding in a case where this is agreed upon by both parties, the husband and the wife. If the husband doesn't want to do it, doesn't happen. If the wife doesn't want to go ahead with it, doesn't happen. If both husband and wife want to go ahead with it, this is one way to go ahead. Now, you, you might ask the question, well, if the wife knows that she's guilty, why would she say yes? And the answer is she probably wouldn't say yes to, to go ahead with this. She would probably say no, in, in, which, in which case this wouldn't happen. And if she said yes, it's probably because she's innocent. And then it becomes water's a blessing and not of curse. So that's the story. There's more, much more about it. Um, Kabbalistically, this is us and God, right? We are the wife who sometimes goes astray. And the idea is to be faithful and not go astray. Um, the, 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 the very opening here is the basis of our Sunday Kabbalah and coffee. The idea of going astray, right? Should any man's wife go astray? That ki sista ishto, sista, the word astray is also related to the word folly. We said that the idea of folly, doing something foolish, means going astray, going off the path of the logical path. And we asked the question Sunday mornings, why would anyone ever go and deviate from what makes sense? And the answer is, spirit of folly, because, you know, no one would know, or it's only one time, or it's no big deal, or whatever, all the excuses and justifications, again, not specifically about any person, it's just a general notion of why people do things that they know better not to do. Um, and that's based on this opening verse. So again, a very, a, an interesting law, a bit of a supernatural situation. Um, yeah. Well, Rabbi? Yes. So the man can have several wives, but he can't be with a woman if he's not married to her. Listen to this. It says that if she's guilty and she drinks the waters, the waters affect the guy, paramour or something, whatever they, whatever they call it. The guy that she was with, it, it hits him too. So it takes out him all. Yeah, so I, I think that's kind of what you were alluding to. But yeah, he, the, again, a husband could have more than one wife, but not another man's wife. Right? If someone's with someone else's wife, that's a problem for her and for him. But if she's not married, I mean, I'm thinking of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. I mean, a man can have several wives, but he can't be with a woman that he's not married. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right. Casually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So he, right. The proper step would be to marry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Right. Right. Ma'am. Correct. Ma'am. Yes, right. And um, isn't that rule... One of the three reasons um, you're not forgiven or you're executed or something in heaven. Well, you know, it says that um, there are three things that usually you've, you override a mitzvah to save a life. But there are three things that you don't do even if your life is at stake. Number one, killing someone else to save your own life we don't do. Um, adultery we don't do to save an, to, even to save our own life. Someone says you have to do this or... 
and idolatry. So those are the, known as the three cardinal sins. I don't know if cardinal is uh, is the maybe has other implications or sounds to it, but it's like the three big ones. Would this would be one of them? Um, but again, if yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Look, if it, it, in in Hasidic philosophy it says that that tshuva is always possible. Doesn't mean that there aren't consequences, but shuva is always possible. The rehabilitation is always possible. Even when the Talmud says that a person is not given the opportunity to do shuva for these things, for certain things, as the Alter Rebbe clarifies in Tanya, it means a person is not given the opportunity, but if they seize the opportunity, they can do it. So in other words, it's not given on a silver platter, but if a person you know, does it anyway, then they can do it. Anyway, all right, let's, let's continue because we have a lot to get to and we're just going to go just a little, a little bit, a little bit quick here. So this is about the Nazir, the Nazarite who is uh, taking a vow of abstention from haircuts, alcohol, and impurity. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, a man or woman who sets himself, I guess, or herself apart by making a Nazarite vow, Nazir, a Nazarite vow, to abstain for the sake of the Lord. So what is the vow of abstention? What does that include? Three things. He shall abstain from new wine and aged wine. He shall not even drink vinegar made from new wine or aged wine. Nor shall he drink anything in which grapes have been steeped, and he shall eat neither fresh grapes nor dried ones. So basically, no grape products. That's number one. For the entire duration of his absence, he shall not eat any product of the grapevine from, skin to se- from seeds to skins. Number two, all the days of his vow of abstinence, no razor shall pass over his head. So uh, taking a vow of abstention means no grape or grape product, no haircuts. Until the completion of the term that he abstains for the sake of the Lord, it shall be sacred. His hair is holy, can't cut it. And he shall allow the growth of his hair, of the hair of his head to grow wild. All right, next, third Abstention. All the days that he abstains for the Lord, he shall not come into contact with the dead. To his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, he shall not defile himself if they die. For the crown of God of his God is upon his head. Listen to this. Even his close relatives that we said before, even if you're a Kohen, you 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 come in contact to help bury your your, your close relative. But someone who takes the Nazarite vow, that's what it means. Not even to father or mother or brother or sister, God forbid. It does one come in contact to, uh, with, with, with their, uh, if they pass away, with their, with their bodies. For the entire duration of his abstinence, he is holy to the Lord. So essentially, if you wanted to maybe give a, a bit of a clearer definition than what I said before, the, the Nazarite vow, the vow of the Nazir, is a vow of, of abstention. Abstention. Abstention from what? The Torah says three things. Wine, grape juice, grapes, etc. Um, haircuts. And coming in contact with the dead. Even a close relative. Now, what happens? You might be thinking this, verse number nine. If someone in his presence dies unexpectedly or suddenly and causes his, the Nazarite head to become defiled, it's like, what happens then? What happens if, you know, he's minding his own business, the Nazir, 
But somebody passed away right in front of him. So now he's in contact with the dead. So he shall shave off the hair of his head on the day of his purification. On the seventh day he shall shave it off. And on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the coin at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The coin shall prepare one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering and atone on his behalf for sinning by coming into contact with the dead. Even though it wasn't his fault. It's like he was minding his own business and he came in contact with, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a corpse. No, he's got to do this. He, he has to reset. He has to shave his head, bring a sin offering and a burnt offering, and he shall sanctify his head on that day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the period of his abstinence and bring a lamb in its first year as a guilt offering. The previous day shall be canceled because his Nazarite ship has been defiled. Got to start again. Oof, look at that. If he does it for a year and six months in, he comes across a dead body. Guess what? Got to reset. Cuts the hair, brings a few offerings. The clock starts again for the 12 months. Oof. Imagine if you were in 11 months and 29 days. That would be so awkward for the Nazar, right? Imagine how disappointing that would be. Oh, well, like I said, I don't write the rules. This is the law of the Nazarite on the day. Oh, by the way, before we continue, who was a famous Nazar? Who was a famous person who had this vow of, of Nazariteship? Samson. Yeah. Samson of Samson and Delilah fame. Remember Samson? The mighty warrior of the Jewish people. He was a mighty warrior. And for, oh, his crazy story. His mother was out one day in the field. And an angel appears to her and says, you're going to get pregnant. You're going to have a child. I think she had difficulty conceiving. Says, you're going to have a, you're going to have a child. And she tells her husband, he's like, no way, who told you this? She's like, I don't know, I think it was an angel. Man of God, an angel, or something. And he's like, no, no way. Come out the next day, and appears again, and he sees it, and the guy just loses it. He's like, whoa, like totally blown away. She's like, I told you. Anyway, so the angel says to them, um, you're going to have a child who's going to be very special, and he should be another. No alcohol or no, no, no gray product, no coming in contact with death, and no, um, and no haircuts. And we know that they cut his hair and that took away his, right? Delilah, he mar- they, they cut it, they, in the middle of the night, his, they cut his hair and that sapped his power and he was able to be, um, not saying that everyone who doesn't have a haircut becomes as mighty as Samson, but that was... Part of, part of his package, at least. Is that in the Torah, this book? No, no, no. It's in the books of, uh, of the prophets. It's in, it's in the book of um, Judges. So, so right after the five books um, close, so the next holy Jewish book is, it, it's no longer the five books, it's after. So it's the book of um, Joshua. So the book of Joshua comes next. And Joshua, of course, was the successor of Moses and led them into the promised land. And so it's about Joshua. And then the next book after that is called Shoftim, Judges. Because after Joshua was pretty much, there were leaders of, every, of the generations that, that were called judges. They were leaders that also judged and, and counseled and guided the people. Samson was one of them. He was um, also certainly a warrior and uh, a very strong 
military figure as well. Um, and just to clarify one more point, at that point, right, with Joshua, so they had already entered Israel, but, and I don't think anything's changed, there were always other nations that never left, or nations that came back, or whatever it was, and consistently there was wars that erupted, one after the other. Um, you know, this war, that war, that's what Samson, who Samson was battling, is battling the Philistines, the Pelishtim, Philistines. I, I probably don't need to tell you the English version of Philistine, right? It's, uh, right? Philistine, Palestine. I mean, that's, that's what it, you know, that's, that's who he was battling in his day. And, um, yeah, so, anyway, there's all, the, my point is, it seems like there's always been some measure of, uh, of, of conflict. This is nothing new, and if we think it's new, it's about this, that, or the other. It's just, it's a, it's a bit of a myopic view of, um, of, of the peace. I, I, don't, I don't know, therefore, I, so therefore what? I, I'm not sure if the, therefore it's like, well, you know, history repeats itself, or it's, we can take it, you know, however, for whatever it's worth, but we just need to know the facts that from when we went into Israel at that point in time, it, it, it uh, I mean, there were times of calm, you know, under King Solomon. King David, what you, King David was a warrior. He was fighting all day. Who was he fighting? Right? He, wasn't, he wasn't fighting against uh, uh, his fellow tribe mates. He was fighting it. Under King Solomon, Shlomo, which means peace, Shalom, Shlomo, that was the first time that it was peaceful. They were strong. The kingdom was strong. They built a temple. That was the first time it was strong. And it lasted for a few hundred years. Okay, let's, uh, let's continue. This is the law of the Nazarite, verse 13. On the day his period of Nazarite ship is completed, he shall present himself at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall bring... Oh, so let's... Before we talked about if it got interrupted. But now if it didn't get interrupted, he finishes the, the 12 months or the 6 months or the 1 week. It, doesn't, it could do it for any amount of time. So he finishes it. So what does he do? He goes to the tent of meeting. He goes to the temple. He shall... The tent of meeting, again, was that the, the, the sanctuary building inside the larger courier. So he shall bring his offering to the Lord. So here's what he should bring. One unblemished lamb in its first year as a burnt offering. One unblemished ewe lamb in the first year as a sin offering. And one unblemished ram as a peace offering. So three animals. And a basket of unleavened cakes, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil with their meal offerings and their libations. It's a lot of food. Reminds me of the very hungry caterpillar. Remember that one? Okay. Next, Lahavta. Next, the Kohen shall present it, all these food and offerings before the Lord, and perform the service of his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall make the ram as a peace offering to the Lord, along with the basket of unleavened cakes, and the Kohen shall perform the service of its meal offering with its libation. The Nazarite, oh, the Nazarite shall shave the head of his Nazarite ship at the entrance of the tent of meeting, right there in the, whole, in the temple, right outside the, 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 the holy space. That's where he gets his haircut. His... I've completed my Nazarite ship time period occasion. That's where he does that. And he shall take the hair of the head of his Nazarite ship and place it on the fire, upon the fire, which is under the peace offering. He puts it on the altar. He puts his hair on the altar. As, a, as like a holy offering almost. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of, it's kind of neat, right? Because it's part of his holy vow of abstention. The Kohen shall then take the cooked foreleg of the ram, one unleavened loaf from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, place them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaven off 
his Nazarite head. The Kohen shall wave them, these three items, this, that, and the other. They shall, he shall wave them as a waving before the Lord. It is consecrated to the Kohen, along with the breast of the waving and the thigh of the uplifting, and other parts, other parts of the animal. After this, the Nazarite may drink wine. We know he got his hair cut. Now he can also drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. This concludes the law of the Nazarite who makes a vow. His offering to the Lord for his Nazariteship is in addition to what is within his means according to the vow that he vows. So shall he do in addition to the law of his Nazariteship. Okay, that's it. That's the end of the Nazarite. So we did the Sota, we did the, the Nazar, the Nazarite. Now we're talking about the priestly blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, this is how you shall bless the children of Israel. Right? So when you, the Kohen is going to bless, this is how you bless. Saying to them, quote, may the Lord bless you and watch over you. May the Lord cause his countenance to shine to you and to favor you. May the Lord raise his countenance toward you and grant you peace. Those are the three stanzas of the priestly blessing. They shall bestow my name upon the children of Israel so that I will bless them. God says, the Kohanim shall bestow my name upon the children of Israel so that I will bless them. And this is how the Kohanim till this day bless the people. In Israel, some do it every day. In diaspora, in some synagogues, it's only done on holidays. We just did it on, uh, on, on Shavuot a few days ago, the priestly blessing. But on special occasions or even... Every day is a special occasion. A Kohen can always bless with this blessing, reciting these verses. It's a very powerful thing. My grandfather, of blessed memory, would at every occasion recite these blessings. People would go over to him on the street and say, could you give me the priestly blessing? He was a Kohen and he was a, uh, a very respected and beloved Kohen. And this is uh, one of the legacies of the Kohen, of the priest, is to be the one who blesses. They are the blessers. In synagogue, it's done that they go up to the front of the synagogue, front of the shul, and from there they chant the blessing to the entire congregation. And it says that you can't do the blessing unless you have love for the one whom you're blessing. So a Kohen has to be someone who loves everybody, which, um, as I've mentioned before, is uh, definitely a strong piece of my grandfather's legacy, always with love and, and, and care and you know, just really appreciating everybody in the community. Um, one other anecdotal thing that I've mentioned before is Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek was a Kohen. And in fact, the, um, the Vulcan or whatever it is, this, this little hand gesture is what the Kohanim do under the talit. When they bless the people, they pull the talit over themselves and they hold the talit. Kind of, they go like this with their arms extended out toward the congregation. Like that. So that is, that's where he got it from, as a Kohen. And even his, the Vulcan, I think the, the blessing, right? May the Lord, what is it? Or may you prosper, what's the, any, any Star Trek um, aficionados that know the, the language of the Star Trek greeting? Let's look it up quickly. Um, Star Trek. Live long and prosper. Greeting, yes, live long and prosper, yes. The live long and prosper comes from, essentially, it's like a, a summary of these blessings right here. Thank you, Matt. Oh, and hey, Matt, good to have you here. 
Welcome, welcome. I don't think we did a formal uh, greeting before. Okay. Yeah. So live long. Yeah, live long and prosper is, uh, is that. Okay. So that's the fourth reading. This was the real, it's a real long reading, but we're going to keep on moving through the Torah portion. And, um, oh, one, one more thing I wanted to share with you. The last verse over here of this reading where God says, the Kohanim, they shall bestow my name upon the children of Israel so that I will bless them. It's out, the simple meaning is, so I will bless them. God says, when you bless the people, I will then bless the people. I will bestow my blessing. I will channel my blessing through your words onto the people. But there's another explanation. So that I will bless them. Uh, they, the Kohanim, shall, bless, shall bestow my name so that I will bless them. When the Kohanim bless, I will bless them, the Kohanim, the priests. I will bless basically those who bless others, as well as those who were blessed. So really you could read it both ways, because them as a pronoun is a little bit um, vague. So when God says, I will bless them, who's the them? Is it the people or the priests? The answer is both. God says, I will bless the people and I will bless also the priests. So lest the priests think, we're doing all the blessings, but who's going to bless us? God says, I got you. I got you. Don't worry. You give and I'll take care of you. Let's continue reading number five. All right, it was on that day. Sorry, it was, and it was that on the day that Moses finished erecting the Mishkan. We're going back in time now, a little bit. We're going back about a month to when the, temp, when the tabernacle was dedicated. Remember the day of dedication? Um, the, the two sons of Aaron died. We read about that in the book of Leviticus a little while ago, like a month or so ago, a month or two ago. So now we're kind of timelining, and we had progressed because we did a census a month later and whatever, but now we're going back in time. And I think Rashi's going to point that out. Yeah. Um, no, I don't see it here. But it's, it's definitely going back in time because Torah is not always in chronological order. Most of the time it is, but it, it, it's not afraid to move back a little bit to fill in some more pieces of information. So it was that on the day that Moses finished erecting the Mishkan, which is basically one year after the Exodus, that he anointed it, sanctified it, and it all, all its vessels, and the altar and all its vessels, and he anointed them and sanctified them. So on that day, which we read about in the book of Leviticus, we read about that previously, it was on the day that the chieftains of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, presented their offerings. We talked about this also before. <coughs> Each day of the first 12 days of the month, after the Mishkan, after the tabernacle opened, one tribe represented and brought a tribal offering. Remember we spoke about this before? Each tribe brought an offering one on, on, on a day. They took turns, one, day one, day two, day three, through day 12. These, they were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were present during the counting. So we just, oh, it's a reference. They counted, but the counting happened later. The counting was a month later. But the Torah is referencing because it already mentioned the counting. So the leaders that, that, that were involved in the census, these were the ones that previously had brought their tribal offering to the, alt, to the temple when it opened the first time, opening day and the 12 days and the, and, and, the, and, the, and the subsequent 11 days. All right, they brought their offering before the Lord. What did they bring? Six covered, sorry, so here's a donation they gave on the day that the Mishkan was inaugurated. Six covered wagons and 12 oxen, a wagon for each two chieftains, 
and an ox for each one. They presented them in front of the Mishkan. So they brought in total, the 12 leaders, 12 tribal leaders came. They brought with them six wagons and 12 oxen. A wagon was split. Every, every two tribes had one wagon, right? Because 12 tribes, six wagons. And 12 oxen means one ox per tribe. And they brought it in front of the Mishkan. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take it from them. Take the gifts of the wagons and the oxen and let them be used in the service of the tent of meeting. You shall give them to the Levites in accordance with each man's work. Look at this. The Levites, God said, are going to need it. You know why? Because how are you going to schlep the boards, the walls, the beams, the sockets through, through a wilderness, through the desert? How are you going to do it? You know what you need? You need some wagons. That's what you need, Moses, right? That's what the Le- Moses was a Levite also. Y'all need some wagons. So the tribal leaders are the ones who donated the six wagons and the 12 oxen. I want to be just, just to, um... oh, here, take a look. Let's just read it inside. So Moses, so God says, take it. So Moses took it. So Moses took the wagons and the cattle and he gave them to the Levites. He gave, listen to this, he gave two wagons and four oxen. Again, two oxen would, would, would pull each wagon. So two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their work. Remember, Gershon carried the curtains, the tapestries, right? The, the, the screens. And he gave four wagons and eight oxen to the sons of Merari who carried the beams and the sockets and the boards, the heavy stuff, according to their work under the direction of Itamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kahat who carried the altar and the menorah, and, and he did not give any wagons. No wagons for you, for incumbent upon them was the work involving the holy objects, which were to carry on their sho- which they were to carry on their shoulders. So, this is this is the distinction. Each of the three families, of the Levite families, had a different task. Kahat carried the vessels, and the vessels were holy. They were very holy, and they were not meant to be put on a wagon carried by an ox. They were meant, they had po- remember they had poles? They put poles and everything. They were to be carried on the shoulders, hand carried. The other things, the beams, the sockets, the boards, the tapestries, the curtains, eh, all of that other stuff was loaded up on wagons and transported, pulled by the oxen. Now the chieftains, that's what the, that's what the heads of the tribes donated. In addition... They each brought an offering on the altar. This is what I mentioned before, on the first 12 days of the opening. The chieftains brought offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. The chieftains presented their offerings in front of the altar. The Lord said to Moses, one chieftain each day. Don't don't take all 12 tribes' offerings, the sacrifices, on the same day. They took the wagons and the oxen on the same day, but... This additional offering, which we'll see soon what that was, don't take it all at once. One representing each day. One chieftain each day, one chieftain each day shall present his offering for the dedication of the altar. Now, who went first? The one who brought his offering on the first day was Nachshon, the son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. We see that Judah goes first here. And his offering was, this is going to be the same for all the tribes. His offering was one Silver bowl, weighing 130 shekels. 
one silver sprinkling basin weighing 70 shekels according to the holy shekel both filled with fine flour mixed with olive oil for a meal offering so again a silver bowl and a silver sprinkling basin Can you imagine how beautiful that was beautiful bowls with flour inside and olive oil okay next one spoon weighing 10 shekels of gold filled with incense so we have a golden spoon with the special incense one young bull, one ram, and one lamb in its first year for a burnt offering. One goat, one young he-goat for a sin offering. And for a peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five he-goats, five lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nachshon, the son of Aminadab, representing the tribe of Judah. So Judah went day one. It was Nachshon, who was, by the way, the guy who, I mentioned this before, who walked into the sea and was the one who jumped in and then split when, he, when it got up to his nose. So he represented the tribes, his tribe, Judah, and they went first. And he brought, again, if we want to summarize it, it's a silver, silver bowl, silver basin, a golden spoon, a bull, ram, and lamb, a goat, two oxen, five rams, five few goats, five lambs. It's a lot of stuff. It's quite, it's quite the donation. It's quite the, quite the offering. And every day a different tribe did it. And if you don't believe me, just look what the Torah says. On the second day, it was Nathanael, the son of Zuar, the chieftain of Issachar, brought his offering. And it's the same thing. He brought his offering of one silver bowl, weighing 130 shekels, one silver sprinkling basin, weighing 70 shekels, both filled with fine flour, Mixed with olive oil for meal offering. One spoon weighing 10 shekels of gold filled with incense. One young bull, one ram, one lamb in its first year for a burnt offering. One young he goat for a sin offering and for the peace offering. Two oxen, five rams, five he goats, five lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nathanael, the son of Tzuar. He brought day two and he represented the tribe of Issachar. Why, why did Issachar go second? Judah, we know Judah was the leader. Well, why not Reuben, the firstborn? Why Issachar? Because it says that he was the one, this guy Nathanael, Nisanel, the son of Tzuar of, of, of Issachar, he was the one that suggested they do this. So he had the suggestion, so he goes second. And why didn't he go first? Because Judah was still like the royal tribe at that point. They were the royal tribe, and they had to go first. But you come up with the idea, you're definitely going to move toward the front of the line over there. Okay, does this make sense, what I'm saying? Yes? Now, every tribe brought the same set of offerings and donations. The same deal. And they did it each on their day. So day one was Judah. Day two was Issachar. What about day three? Day three was Zebulun, Zebulun. And the chieftain was Eliab, the son of Helon. And he brought the same offering. I'm not going to read it because it's... Because I want to do it a little bit quicker. So I'm not going to read it. But it's the same thing. He brought, they literally brought this, all the tribes brought the same thing. And day four was finally Reuben, the firstborn, right? And it was Elitzer, the son of Shedeir. By the way, if these guys sound familiar, these are the ones who were, um, who did the census of their tribes along with Moses and Aaron in last week's Torah portion. When he was counting them, so these were the leaders that went around for their tribe to help with the census. Anyway, so he brought it on day four for his tribe, and that's what they brought, the same set of offerings. And on day five, it was Shimon, Simeon. And it was Shulamiel, the son of Tzurishadeh, the representative who brought the same stuff. 
And let's go now to reading number six. We're making some progress here. Reading six tells the same story. On day six, God, the tribe of God, Elias of the son of Duel, represented and brought the same set of offerings. Day seven, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. That was one of the two sons of Joseph. Remember, said Joseph was, the Levites weren't counted in this, so Joseph was split into two, Menashe and Ephraim. So Ephraim, Elisham, the son of Amihud, and he brought same deal on behalf of his tribe. Eighth day is Manasseh, the other son of Joseph, Gamliel, the son of Petatzer. Same offering. Day nine, Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gidoni. Same offering. Day ten, Dan, Achiezer, the son of Amishadai. Same deal, same donation. Copy and paste. On day 11, Asher, the tribe of Asher, and the representative was Pagiel, the son of Achran. Again, the same guys that counted, that did the census, which actually happened chronologically later, but we read about last week. So again, he brought the same offering for his tribe. Day 12, Naphtali, last but not least, Naphtali, and he brings, oh, and Achira, the son of Anon, represented, and he brought the same series of offerings, which takes us now to, to reading seven. You see how quickly we did that one? You like that, right? All right, so, uh, so reading number seven, this, let's summarize it. This was the dedication offering of the altar presented by the chieftains on the day it was anointed. A grand total, if we tally them all up together, over 12 days, 12 tribes, there were how many silver bowls? 12, because each one brought one, so it's 12 total. 12 silver, silver basins and 12 gold spoons. The weight of each silver bowl we know was 130 shekels and each basin was 70 shekels, all the silver of the vessels. How much silver in total? All the weight in total was 2,400 shekels. 2,400 shekels of the bowls and the basins. Right? Look, look, look. All we have to do is add up the, all we have to do is add up the shekels together. The weight. Right? The silver bowl was 130 shekels, and the basin, the silver basin, was 70 shekels. So what's 130 plus 70? 200. So they each gave 200 shekels worth of, of silver in a bowl and a basin. So 200 times 12, 2,400. Yeah, 12 tribes, each giving 200 shekels worth of silver. It's 2,400. 2,400 shekels of silver donated. How much gold? 12 gold spoons. Uh, with incense, each spoon weighing 10 shekels, according to the Holy Shekel. So all the spoons totaled 10, uh, 10 times 12, 120 shekels of gold. The total of the cattle for the burnt offerings was 12 bulls, 12 rams, 12 lambs in the first year with, the, with their meal offering. And there were 12 young he goats for, for sin offerings. The total of cattle for the peace offerings, 24 oxen, 60 rams, 60 he goats, 60 lambs in their first year. This was dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And now the Torah says something beautiful and seemingly unrelated. When Moses would come into the tent of meeting, again, that private building, to speak with God, he would hear God's voice speak the voice. That should probably be capitalized, the voice. Not like the show. He would hear the voice speaking to him from the two cherubim above the covering, which was over the ark of the testimony. And God spoke to him from there. Notice he would walk into that space. He would stand outside the curtain. He wouldn't go into the Holy of Holies. He wouldn't stand in front of the ark. 
He would stand behind that curtain, just to clarify. But the voice would come from the above the altar. Uh, above the ark, I'm sorry, above the ark. A few things I want to share with you. That, that ends the Torah portion. A few things I want to share with you. Number one, I, qu- I asked this question last year, but I ask it every year to myself, and I remind myself of a beautiful answer that the Rebbe gave. Why does the Torah copy and paste 12 times? And it goes through the, 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 about, about the, uh, the, 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 the tribal donations and dedications. It's the same thing again, again and again. Actually, it's not, not the same here. This is the tally. This is the total. But why, why two readings? Readings five and six. Twelve times the same offering. And the Rebbe gives a beautiful answer. The Rebbe says, the Torah is trying to emphasize and teach us that although they gave the same thing, it wasn't the same gift. It wasn't the same experience. They, the tribes each donated the same items, <coughs> but it was a unique experience because every tribe went into it with their own set of perspectives and attitudes and feelings and emotions and spiritual development. And every tribe and tribal leader had a unique experience of this donation of this gift. So sometimes we think, well, if I pray from the same prayer book as the person sitting next to me, so then it's not my prayer. It's not, I put on the same tefillin as somebody else. It's not, it's not, I light candles like everyone else, so I'm, I'm like a robot. It's like cookie cutter. And the Torah is telling us, no, just because you're doing the same thing doesn't mean it's the same experience. It's a different experience. That's where the Torah individualizes it 12 times. Although the Torah could have said, after the first day, and, and thus did all the tribes, the Torah doesn't summarize it like that. To emphasize that it was a unique experience. And so too in our lives, we can have unique experiences even when it seems like we're doing the same thing as somebody else. Because it's not what we're doing, it's, it's, it's us who are part of that experience. And I'm sorry, Rabbi, and every day, even if we're doing the same thing every day, like the same mitzvah, I love it. I love it. Exactly. Similar to what we said Wednesday night on the Torah class. That every day is unique, even if it looks like just another day. Right? Even with time itself, ah, oh, another day, sunrise, sunset. We could look at anything could be devalued as just another, uh, just another person. But we have to get into the soul, heart and soul of the matter. The Torah is reminding us. By repeating it 12 times, the Torah is reminding us to look beneath the surface and to find the, the, the beauty of the individual. The individual tribe, leader, person, day, whatever it is. That's one thing. The next thing is... Um, I just want to share my screen one more time quickly and share with you a Rashi at the end of the portion. Rabbi, can I ask a quick question? Sure. What happened to the gold? Like the spoons of gold? Did they just stay in the... I think they used it for maybe the incense altar, which was also the inner altar for incense was gold. Maybe they used that spoon to actually ladle out the incense on top of the fire when they were bringing the incense. But I mean, so they left it in the, the tent? The yeah, they, they donated it, yeah. I guess the priests took it and stored it, you know, wherever they kept I'm not sure exactly where they kept it, you know, in between uses. But my understanding is that these were used for, they, they, they had utility. It wasn't just like donating something, you know, lovely. It was really like something that was both lovely and utilitarian that they used for the service. Um, Okay, so 
Check this out. The last Rashi on the, on the Torah portion. It says that Moses would stand outside the curtain. Well, Rashi actually um, clarifies. Um, he, he stood outside the curtain. You see that? Outside the curtain. So Moses came into the tent of meeting, and there he would hear the voice of God coming from between the, the cherubim above the ark cover. So he was in that first chamber inside the building, but he didn't go into the innermost chamber. Only the high priest on Yom Kippur went into that innermost chamber, right? So he would stand outside in the building, but outside the chamber, he would hear the voice coming from that space. But that's not, here's what I wanted to say. So Moses would hear the voice. So Rashi says, I might think it was an undertone. God spoke to him quietly like, hey, Moses, here's what I want to tell you. Therefore, scripture tells us, teaches us the voice, which is like the voice. What's the voice? The very voice which spoke with him at Mount Sinai, which was loud and clear. But when the voice reached the entrance of that building, it stopped and did not proceed outside the tent. You with me? Inside that space, God's voice was as loud as it was at Sinai. But outside, the, outside that Ohamod, outside that tent of meeting, no one else could hear the voice. Only Moses could hear the voice. And here we have a beautiful paradox. That inside the space, we have the infinite voice. But the infinite voice doesn't go outside of that finite space. And so here's two messages. Number one, where do we hear that voice? In the four cubits of Torah. When we study Torah, when we do a mitzvah, we're inside that holy space and we hear God's voice nice and resonant. But what's our job like Moses? God would communicate to Moses inside the tent. And then Moses was supposed to go outside the tent and convey it to everyone else. Our job is to go in, study Torah, hear the voice, hear the infinite voice of God, the eternal voice of God in Torah, and then step outside the tent, so to speak, and share the message, just like Moses did. Be a light unto the nations. Not, not you know, telling everyone to keep all the mitzvot if they're not Jewish, obviously not, but the values of Judaism, certainly within our own ranks, to share the message with, with our fellow tribe members, but even for the rest of the world to share the universal messages of Judaism with all. That's our job, to go in and to carry the message out and to transform the world into a holy, beautiful, peaceful, light-filled space. May we indeed do that in our lives. May we have a wonderful Shabbat and be inspired by the Torah portion and by this final lesson where God empowers us almost to, uh, to carry the message forward, it would be inspired to indeed bring the message to the world and may, may we have an end to all suffering, all pain, all challenge, and have Mashiach immediately, let us say, Amen. All right, it's great to see you all. I'm going to sign off. It's, it's, it's late. I wanted to do Mishnayis, but I'm not going to be able to do it uh, today. We'll pick it up, please God, next week. Monday, we should be back on. All right. Great to see you, Ray and Donna and Sandrine and Matt. Pleasure. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. We'll see you all. Shalom, everybody. Take care. Bye, everybody.